As you turn to Matthew chapter 5, incredibly grateful for the uh, preaching break Kendrick initiated and offered and helped make happen, but uh, super excited to be able to break open God's Word with you on this first Sunday of January. And we'll start today like we do every first Sunday of January by telling you normally we preach through books of the Bible or uh, either verse by, by verse or through enough of the book for you to get an idea of what the book is about and how to understand it and apply it to life. But every January we stop and we do a four-part topical series. First two Sundays of January we focus on the Word and prayer, the Bible and prayer, and the essentialness of the Word and prayer to our spiritual health and vitality. We can't be God's people. We can't enjoy, exist, thrive as God's people apart from God's Word and communion and prayer with him it's just uh, as, as normal to us as eating and breathing is to us physically and so we want to emphasize that every year as we enter another year of life like you've got to be connected to God through his word you've got to be connected with them in prayer on a consistent basis and then the third and fourth Sunday we walk through uh, sermons on racial reconciliation or racial harmony in conjunction with Martin Luther King Jr. holiday and sanctity of human life Sunday in conjunction with sanctity of human life Sunday um, two issues that not only continue to be cu- culturally important and relevant, but they're good evidences of how or if the gospel that we profess to believe is showing up in how we live life and how we apply it to life. Two issues typically co-opted by both major political parties that say, hey, we care more about this, and the other side says, hey, we care more about that. And we, we can say, because we come from the standard of Scripture, Okay, there's good things in what you're saying about that, and there's good things in what you're saying about that, but you're also missing a lot of stuff, getting a lot of stuff wrong. And so we, we want to help God's people understand these issues because they're not important to God because, well, they're so um, important to our culture in this day and age. They're important to God because they've always been important to God because God has always desired to make a people who are a diverse family, and God has created us in his image, so of course he values and loves and sanctifies human life above all other life. So how do we do that well? We'll spend time walking through that the rest of this month. We usually try to tie these four sermons together with some kind of theme, and this year we hope and pray that what we can show you is the realities of our relationship with God through His Word and prayer and the importance of being engaged in racial reconciliation and sanctity of human life, they're not new ideas, but they're essential to who we are and have always been true of God and his people. This goes way back to the beginning, way back to creation, and pop up throughout in our threads that, that flavor the entire scripture, scriptures. Caring about racial reconciliation and sanctity of human life isn't just important because it's important to some people today or relevant to some people today. It's always been important to God and his people. It's always been true that prayer is an essential component of a healthy spiritual life. And it's always been true that God speaks and we respond to his word. And we engage him and his word and his people. It's essential to who we are. So we're just going to look at one verse in Matthew 5, verse 18, and then use that to help us think through why we should value the word. Verse 18 says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Father, we thank you for your word. Not only that you have chosen to make yourself known through your word, but in the the providence of your sovereign will, you 
eventually allowed us to record this and write this down in languages we could understand, to have it translated and preserved for thousands of years so that we in 2020 can read and feast on this word with full confidence. It's exactly what you intend for us to have when you originally spoke these words. We are connected to you through your word. We are connected to God's people, not only uh, all over the world today, but throughout all of history through your word. We rejoice in the same truths. We cherish the same theological doctrines. We love the same things you love because your word unites us. And so bless us this morning as we feast on your word. Speak truth to our heart that will transform our lives, that will give glory to Christ as we live it out and apply it this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I read through an article this past week that talked about the cultural moments that defined 2019. Um, a $120,000 banana taped to a wall. A $91 million three-foot-high stainless steel bunny rabbit. J-Lo returning. The constancy of Keanu, like a warm blanket, he's always the same. Notre Dame Cathedral Burns, Billie Eilish and all of her Eilishness. Jane Fonda's red coat, flea bag, and Billy Porter were the topics that this article mentioned that defined 2019. Apparently I was asleep for part of 2019, or at least uh, when these things happened. But I was thinking, like, okay, well, whose culture does that define? And how, how monolithic is that for everybody? And in five years, well, which of these things will we even remember? In fact, like, think about 2015. Without Googling it, what are, what are three uh, of the, the big things that define 2015? Without Googling it, anyone. What? Okay, yes. That defined this culture for sure. <laughs> But culture as a whole, yeah, it's hard to think of stuff, right? I'll give you some hints. Um, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if that was 2015, I, I'll take your word for it. I have no idea. Drake was calling people on the telephone. He's doing that in 2015. Taylor Swift was living like his 1989 in 2015. Hamilton. Hey, Hamilton. Yes. Adele, Caitlyn Jenner. The Force Awakens, although a lot of people probably wish it would not have awakened. Just stay asleep. Anyway, you get the point. Like, it's hard to recall. Like, things come to mind. If you, if you Google, oh, yeah, I remember that. That was so much fun. The dress, you know, if you saw it green or blue or black and white or whatever it was. That was good times, but, like, it's not affecting your life now. You don't think about it every day. So all the things that they say define culture now in five years will be just a distant memory. Unless somebody brings it up in a sermon, right? Will we be captivated constantly by the next new thing that our culture deems as important? Knowing it's quickly going to change in a few years, we won't be able to really think about it. Or by God's, God's grace, will we be captivated by what is eternal and deep and beyond our ability to actually consume in this lifetime? What I pray for us is that we are a people so captivated by Jesus that we will be captivated by what he loved and loves, by what he thinks and, th and thought was important and valuable and of greatest consequence and treasures, that our hearts 
would be so captivated by that that our relationship with God's word would just naturally flow. Of course, of course we would be a people in God's word. Because my heart is captivated by Jesus and I love what he loves and he loves God's word. He is God's word. If we're going to be a people deeply rooted in what matters most in this constantly shifting culture, if we're going to be a people who treasure God's word and it's not a chore to get in God's word because it's such something we treasure so highly. If we're going to go after God's word like we go after the, the newest episode of a show we really love. and Oh, it drops on Friday, Mandalorian, yes. I'm going to watch it before the day is over. Like that's the kind of passion we go after God's word with. If we're going to be a people who value what's eternal more than what's trending, if we're going to be a people who can be a rock and a lighthouse, a place of stability, a, play, a people who are constantly dependable, reliable, so that when other people we are in life with are unsure of where to turn, are unsure of how to view these events of our culture, we can tell you. Like we're anchored to something that's eternal. We, we will be told and billions upon uh, billions of dollars will be spent this year to tell us that the future of humanity rests on who wins the presidential election in 2020. And we know it's important, but as a people of the book, we know it's not that important. Come on. So we don't have to freak out or fall apart. We can be this oasis of stability because we're anchored and tethered to something bigger and greater than anything our culture deems is valuable. Jesus was facing some people who may have accused him of altering or dismissing the importance of God's word, the scriptures, during his early ministry. And he responded in this passage with a, a strong declaration in verse 18 of what's always been true about God, his word, and his people. Now just to give you a little bit of context, this passage occurs in the opening section of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. This is the longest consecutive teaching of Jesus at one time to one group of people. And it begins at the very be uh, beginning of Jesus' ministry. Basically, uh, this sermon explains what life is like for a citizen in the kingdom of Christ. This is how we'll live. This is who we are. He began with well-known beatitudes, which describe the character of a follower of Jesus. And he declares them to be blessed by God. God's people are those who are humble and lowly in spirit, who mourn over their sins, who are meek. They're strong, but they're strong under the control of their king. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. And we are so much like Jesus that we will be persecuted like Jesus was persecuted. But that's okay. That's a good thing. It's a blessed way to live. We are, in fact, the salt of the earth. And we are a light like a city on a hill shining in our dark world. This is who we are as God's people. And then in verse 17, he kind of sets up the rest of this sermon that goes through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Verse 17 don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I'm about to teach you some things that's going to make you think that I'm dismissing the Old Testament, but I'm not here to give you a new law, but I'm taking the law you've already been given, and I'm deepening it. I'm fulfilling. I'm filling it up with its intended meaning. I'm defining it in a way that maybe you've never heard it defined before, but it's the way that God intended for it to be defined. For example, the law says don't murder, he'll say later in chapter 5. But I'm telling you that you can hate someone in your heart to such a degree that the only reason you haven't murdered them is because you haven't had the opportunity or you're worried about getting caught. 
because you murdered them in your heart. That's equally as sinful in the eyes of God as if you actually killed them. Do not commit adultery, but I'm telling you, Jesus says, if you lust after a woman or a man in your heart, the only reason you haven't committed adultery is because you haven't had the opportunity or you're afraid you'll get caught. So in God's eyes, it's equally as grievous. And it's so radical. See, what had developed among the Jews was a group of religious people who were highly esteemed for how they outwardly obeyed the law. They were respected and considered the best of God's people, and they, they were highly respected. Like the, the common day people in Jesus' time, they, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, these guys do it better than anybody else. Jesus was the first guy to come along and, and push back on that, say, no, they're not what you think they are. And Jesus says in verse 20 and reveals through the rest of the sermon that their righteousness is only skin deep. It doesn't flow from a transformed heart. And that to be a citizen in God's kingdom means you have to have an inner righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Which was mind-blowing, jaw-dropping to the everyday Jew in the first century. How can we be more righteous than those guys? Nobody loves the law or cares about the law or knows the law better than those guys. And Jesus reveals what that looks like through these chapters. What he is after is a transformed people, not a people who simply outwardly appear to be doing the right thing. Which comes through being a people who value and obey God's word. So I've not come to dismiss the law. In fact, I'm telling you the law is not going to pass away, he says. Not until everything is accomplished, verse 18 says. Jesus emphasizes the permanence of the, the law of the Old Testament, the scriptures, you might say, in verse 18. And he begins by saying this, this phrase, and it depends on your translation. Some of your Bibles may say truly, truly, but uh, this one says, for truly I tell you. Hard to see this in the English, but literally in the original language of the New Testament, it reads, amen, amen. Which means, let this be true, let this be true. So it's okay to say amen during a worship gathering. You're saying yes. What I just heard, I want that to be true. Yes, very good. What I just sang, what I just heard prayed, what I just heard uh, uh, confessed, I want that to be true. Yes, amen, let that be true. What's unique about this is that no other Jewish rabbi in the first century spoke like this. The Jewish rabbis in the first century would simply quote other rabbis. Rabbi so-and-so says this, rabbi so-and-so says that. Rabbi so-and-so says that. In fact, Old Testament prophets didn't speak like this. You read through the Old Testament, they're always saying, thus saith the Lord. Jesus is the first one to show up on the scene and says, I say to you. You see this throughout chapter 5. You've heard that it was written, Old Testament, but I'm telling you. Throughout this sermon, this sermon he's asserting this kind of authority in himself. A jaw-dropping assertion of authority, authority that's equal with the Old Testament, which is why when you get to the very end of chapter 7, it ends that the people were astonished at the authority in which Jesus spoke. Nobody spoke like this. And he says in this verse, until heaven and earth pass away, the law, the, the Old Testament, the scriptures will remain until everything is accomplished. Those two phrases, until heaven and earth pass away, until all is accomplished, they're really like bookends, different ways of saying the same thing. Heaven and earth here is an expression of creation, so don't think heaven, the new heavens and earth coming down to this faraway place we'll live one day with God and his people. But think of heavens as the sky, the space that is above the earth, so the, the expanse of the horizon. And basically Jesus is saying, until all the created order passes away, until the end of time, this present age, his word will remain. 
He actually goes further in Matthew. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven, in fact, will pass away. The present creation as we know it will be recreated in the new heavens and the earth. But this present creation as we know it will, in fact, pass away. But my word will remain. Because his word is eternal. And he adds this fascinating detail. He doesn't just say the law, the Old Testament, the scriptures. He, he says, not the smallest letter, not, not the stroke of a letter will pass from this law. Not the least stroke of a pen, some of your translations say. The King James Version famously says, not a jot or a tittle. People have been reading that for years, like, what is a jot and a tittle? ESV says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now the iota in the Greek New Testament is the uh, smallest letter. Its corresponding smallest letter in the Hebrew is the yod. So it's a, like a backwards R that's written high above the line, like a superscript. Very, very small. It's equivalent to our English Y. So that's our Y in Hebrew. That won't disappear from the law, nor the least stroke of the pen. In Hebrew, the least stroke of the pen would be the equivalent of the difference between the two letters you see on the screen. Our, our equivalent to RR and the Hebrew D, RD, Dalit and Resh. Just that small little thing. And there's like three or four letters in the Hebrew alphabet like this. That they basically look the same except for this small little stroke of the pen that makes it different. You might think of a, an I and a T. A dot and a cross line is the only difference between those two letters. And you see this incredible confidence in the Old Testament throughout the New Testament. All through the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, John, Peter, whoever was writing... They, they defend the faith, they're establishing the faith, and they do it so often by saying, for it is written. Written where? For it is written in the Old Testament, the scriptures that we have. They're writing the New Testament. They know that what they're writing is equivalent to the Old Testament, but it's not written yet. They're in the process of writing it. So they're quoting the only scriptures that they have, the Old Testament, and they declare it without any verification, without any sense that they've got to, to somehow shore it up. They just say, for it is written. This is the authority, because... Everyone understood this was God's word, especially among the Jews. For it is written. And their confidence in God's word extended down to the very letter, not just the very letter, but the smallest stroke of the letter. Like if we had just incredible confidence when we dotted our I, crossed our T, that's as much as important as putting my signature on the line. There's a phrase that we use to describe this level of confidence in the Bible. It's verbal plenary inspiration. The Bible is inspired, not like you and me, we get inspired and we paint something or write a song or a poem or something, but the Bible is inspired in the sense of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. The, the, Greek, the word in the Greek New Testament is literally God-breathed, so theos, God, noustos, comes from pneuma, breath, wind, spirit, so literally all the scripture is breathed out of God himself. It flows and emanates from who God is, which means it contains and has the very character and nature of God himself. God is true, so scripture is true. God is holy, so scripture is holy. God is right, so scripture is right. And all of it, so it's not just some, it's not just the red words, not just the parts you like, all of it. So this is a time in the Bible where all does mean all. All of it is breathed out by God, and it's verbal, the actual words. It's not just the thoughts and ideas that are breathed out by God, but the actual words. So when you study 
the Bible, you study the actual words, the sentences, the paragraphs, and the grammar of the day and the language of the day. Thankfully, it's been translated for us so we can understand it. Because God's communicating to us in a way we can understand him. He can communicate in a way we don't understand. But he loves us and he wants us to know him. So he puts it right where we can get it. And Jesus says down to the smallest stroke of the pen, the smallest letter of the scriptures, they're so permanent that until the end of creation, they will remain. So for those who want to dismiss the Old Testament, we don't need that anymore. Take that up with Jesus. He says it's going to remain. It's going to still be in effect, in place. Not only in the sense that we, we can't destroy it. That's been tried. One of the best examples of this, Frederick Nietzsche, the German philosopher from the 1800s, whose, philosophers helped fuel, whose, whose philosophy helped fuel Nazism, communism. He said in 100 years, the Bible would be gone and believed by no one. He dies. Geneva Bible Society buys his house and starts printing the Bible. Ha ha, take that, Nietzsche. So it's not just we can't literally get rid of it physically. The governments of the earth said, hey, we're going to burn all the Bibles and get rid of the Bible from the face of the earth. It just can't do it. It could not happen. And that, well, of course, it's digital. Of course, we have copies they can't find. Well, even when there weren't print copies, you couldn't get rid of it. It preserves itself. God preserves it. But it's not just that it remains physically, but it also means they are still in effect. The, the word, the, the scriptures are still to be obeyed and followed, as you see in verse 19. Until, as verse 18 says, everything is accomplished. Which is why Jesus would say in the Great Commission, just before he ascends into heaven, that the rest of our life is to be about this. All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make uh, disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. We take this word with us to teach other people how to follow Jesus, how to be one of his people, how to be a disciple, how to make disciples. John Wesley was known for praying a prayer of Thomas Aquinas that he would be a man of one book. We must be a people of one book, that there's no other book that has this much value that we treasure and cherish this much because there's no other book that connects us with God. There's no other path to get to God except through the scriptures. God has always made himself known through his word. Go back to creation. There was nothing until God speaks. Through his words, he's creating all of creation. We know from John chapter 1, that's actually Jesus as the agent of creation. God spoke everything into existence. God speaks to a man named Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, throughout the book of Genesis, calling to himself a people to be his people through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God's people in slavery in Exodus are calling out for a deliverer. How will he get a deliverer to them? God shows up in a, a bush consumed by fire. The bush is not consumed, but the fire is in the bush. And does what to Moses? Speaks to Moses. And calls him to be his servant, to go and set the people free. God speaks or sends angels and messengers to various leaders to rescue his people throughout the book of Judges. For Samuel, God is going to raise up this new kind of servant called a prophet. And an old man has a young boy living in his house. And Samuel is waking up this young boy and hears his voice calling him. He keeps running to Eli. He thinks this old man Eli. What do you want? What do you want? Nothing. I'm sleeping. Go back to bed. And finally, it dawn, uh, 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 dawns on Eli what's happening. 
Eli tells him, Samuel, when you hear the voice again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. These prophets would flavor the rest of the history of the nation of Israel, known for their pronouncement, thus saith the Lord. And then after Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, there's this time period between the Old Testament and New Testament, this 400 or so years, this intertestinal period that's known for what? God no longer spoke. He no longer was speaking to his people. It's quiet. Until the time came, according to the providence of God, and an angel appeared, a messenger of God, with a message to Zechariah. You're going to have a son. He's going to be a, na- a man named John. And he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then an angel appeared to Mary. Then an angel appeared to Joseph. And we just celebrated that whole story. Jesus the Messiah would come and would be known as the, this authoritative teacher. He was known as much for his authoritative teaching as much as his miraculous power. And he leaves us with this command to go and speak, proclaim this gospel message. A message made known through languages and words to all the peoples of the earth. And it's still in process. There are still thousands of people groups waiting for the message of the gospel to be translated in their language. So that they can know God. So they can be saved by God through his son, Jesus. God has always made himself known through his revealed word to his people. So we could respond in faith and obedience and joy and love. And this is an act of love. He knows, God knows himself, he knows he is the highest source, the greatest source of joy and love and hope and peace and rest So unless he makes himself known to us, we will miss out on the greatest source of love, joy, peace, and rest. So in his love, he has chosen to make himself known so that we could know him and we could experience the greatest experience of love and joy and hope and peace. There's no way to do that apart from the scriptures. What we see in this verse, what we see throughout the ministry of Jesus is the great value he placed on the word of God. In his case, it was the Old Testament. In our case, it's all of Scripture. You see, Jesus, all through his life, relying upon the Old Testament, using it, valuing it, referencing it. When tempted by Satan, Jesus fought back with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. He simply quoted the Old Testament three times. Jesus was the Son of God. Anything he would have said would have been as authoritative as Scripture itself. But he simply quotes what's already been written. Word is written. Man should not live by bread alone. Jesus quoted the Old Testament, in fact, 64 times, seeing it as authoritative, affirming several Old Testament events that some people question if they even happened. Jesus referred to Jonah in the well as though it really happened. Adam and Eve as real individuals, not symbolic for humanity, affirming marriage between a man and a woman, affirming the Israelites eating manna from heaven, that bread just fell out of the sky. If these things did not happen, Jesus, and Jesus quoted it as though it did happen, and Jesus' omniscience is called to be, is reason to question that. Like, well, if it didn't happen, why did Jesus act like it did happen? That's odd. Or if he knew that it was a fake event and he's quoting it as though it's real, then his morality is called into question. Like, that's, that's kind of devious. Or they really did happen and Jesus knew they happened. And he is king of the universe. Until Christ came. The law and the Old Testament scriptures were the most valuable possession given to man by God on this earth. 
It was God's way of knowing him and having a relationship with him and living life on this earth. And when Jesus came, it only fulfilled what had been written and then gave opportunity to write more, to finish the story. All the saints who came before Jesus were living in light of the promise that was to come. And all of us who've been here since Jesus are living in light of the promise that was realized in Christ. All the blanks are filled in for us. So that we then value the scriptures like they value the scriptures. Psalm 19.10. More to be desired are they, the scriptures, than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 119, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. If we're going to build our lives on this one book because it is a revelation of the Most High God, it begins with how much we value this word. Do you see the word as essential or optional? Do you see the word as a treasure, as a chore? Does the word feed the deepest places of your soul? Does the word satisfy the greatest longings of your heart? Does the word satisfy your soul even more than food satisfies your body? Not because you're relating to a book, ink, words on pieces of paper, but because this book is alive and connects us to God. Because it's living and active, as Joseph read. This is what God intended through his word. Because the written word connects us to the living word that is Christ. See this as clear as anywhere in 1 Peter 1. Because you have been born again, verse 23, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through what? Living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. It is by the word we have been born again. It is through the word we continue to live. If this is the value you have for the word, if you're born again, like I, I know this is resonating deep in your heart like, yes, that's, the, that's how I want to love the word. And fantastic, that is evidence that Christ lives inside of you. You love and value what he loves, and by his grace and his gospel, you, 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 you cherish it. He lives inside of you. He's shaping your heart and your desires. And if you don't value this word, like you're sitting here like, eh, you know, it's all right. Some of the good parts, exciting stories in the Old Testament. Stuff I watched in VeggieTales, that seemed to be interesting. But, I mean, I don't really need it. I've gone quite a while without it. Or just, I'm really disinterested. doesn't make sense. The good news. Christ is here. His word is here to transform your heart this morning. And to give you a love and desire for, your, for his word that you've never had before. Just ask him. All you got to do is ask him. Father, I, I realize my heart hasn't desired and loved what you love. I haven't desired your word. I, I know that I'm sinful. But I'm asking you to come in and make me a new person so that I love what you love and desire what you desire. And I hunger and thirst for you through your word. Guaranteed he loves to answer that prayer.
because it connects us to him. And even when we go through seasons of dryness that we all go through, let's not pretend, let's not put on a show like, ah, every morning it's a delight to get in the word. We all go through seasons of dryness where it is hard, where we're distant from the word. There's always in in the life of God's people, there's this longing to return. Like it's this distant voice always calling, come back, come on, come back. You know how good it is. Make space for me, make space for me. And when we come back, it's like sitting down with this old friend. We have this long conversation that just continues every time we get together. And, it's, and, and you're like reading the word again. You're like, oh, man, why did I ever stop? I'm such an idiot. So as we value this word as Jesus and God's people have always valued this word, then it's simply, okay, then what are the rhythms that I build in my life to connect with God through his word? What does it look like to make space to love and enjoy God through his word? So one thing we're doing this year to encourage our church in 2020 is reading through the Bible together as a church. That's what we're doing in 2020. We've sent out some communication uh, through our missional communities uh, that speak to this. If you haven't gotten that communication, please let us know. We'd love to get it to you. Or if you're not in a missional community, even better, we'd love to connect you to a missional community, these small groups of people that live as a family of servant missionaries that live as the church when we're not in this building on Sunday mornings. Um, The basic idea is to pick a Bible reading plan and share that plan with people you're doing life with. Share it with your spouse, share it with your kids, share it with your missional community, share it with your DNA group. Uh, Get in a DNA group and share it with your DNA group. And then begin reading and feasting on his word throughout this year. Share verses you've read, share truths that you've been confronted by, truths that have convicted you, truths that have encouraged you or challenged you. Share amazement, share confusion, questions. Like, why is this in the Bible? Genesis 19, whoo, maybe 20, I forget. Let, let's be a people who, yes, we talk about the things of life, football and food and Netflix and, 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 and those sorts of things, but even more we enjoy and discuss how God is speaking to us, right? LSU's offense is amazing. I've never seen anything like it in my entire life. Let's talk about how amazing LSU's offense is. But let's also talk about God. Let's also talk about the treasure that is Christ. Let's also talk about how God is speaking to me and revealing himself to me through his word. You don't have to pick a plan that takes you through literally every single verse. There are plans that we've offered. You can find plans on your own that take you uh, through a a path through the Bible, hitting the high points, getting the gist of the main message of the Bible. You you can even take, uh, there's two and three year Bible reading plans that take you slowly through the Bible over two or three years that some people may prefer. And then beginning in February, uh, February 2nd, throughout the rest of 2020, our Sunday morning teachings will be walking through the story of the Bible from creation to revelation. Breaking the Bible basically down into 43 weeks, and our hope and prayer, it's either going to build a foundation or strengthen a foundation that's already there that understands the whole narrative of the Bible as one story. There's hundreds and hundreds of characters and stories, but they all build one cohesive story. And that by God's grace, through Jesus and his gospel, we are now caught up and we are part of that story. A lot of you have begun to read through the Bible. And this is the way it usually goes. It's kind of like New Year's resolutions or a new diet, new workout plan. You do great for a few weeks in January. But then February hits or Leviticus hits and you're like, I just can't do this anymore. And you get behind and then it's too much to catch up. And then just, okay, next year, next year, 2021 will be the year. 
So not only do we have to check our heart, our motivation, but we also need to do this in community for mutual encouragement and accountability. Heart motivation, not just to complete a plan, but to commune with God. To enjoy Him, to know Him, to love Him more and more. There, there is an essential aspect of that rooted in a strong, deep, and consistent engagement in the world, in, in the Word. It's not essential that you read the Bible through every year to enjoy that. That's just something we've created. So if you miss, and maybe miss a lot, don't beat yourself up. Oh, I'm such a terrible Christian. Everybody's doing this perfectly and I'm not. I promise you we're not. Don't beat yourself up. Don't condemn yourself. Catch up if you want to or just skip those sections. It's okay. Come back to it later in the year. Come back to it next year. It will still be incredibly good for your soul to engage in God's word in 2020, no matter how much of God's word you're engaging in, if you're engaging with God and not just following a plan and reading words on a page. We've shared some options to do with your kids, Jesus Storybook Bible, the Beginner's Bible. There's others that are out there, good resources. Some other uh, tools we'll be sharing to help you do this with your kids at home so that on their age-appropriate level, they're engaging with God and his word more and more this year. Audio Bibles, uh, be creative, make it fun, use technology. Audio Bibles, dramatic readings, the Bible set to really good music. They're all options that are out there today. Whatever it takes to help your mind and heart engage with God and His Word this year as never before. Like Think about yourself a year from now, January 5th, 2021. Look back over 2020. What do you want to have said about yourself, thought about yourself, feel about yourself, about how you lived in 2020. Man, I, I saw all the new series on Netflix. Didn't miss an episode. Man, I engaged in God's word and it transformed me and I know God and love God and have greater joy in God than I've ever had before because I went deep with him, loved him, enjoyed him as never before in his word. So see who you want to be a year from now. And by God's grace, because of the gospel, through his word, in community, let's pursue that together. Let's go after that together. Let's understand God and his word as never before. The goal is not to complete the plan. The goal is to know and love God more and share that love with others. So let's just crush right now any spiritual pride from the overachievers who find checking boxes as satisfying to their souls as engaging with God and his word. Remember the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were admired for how much of the word that they knew. And Jesus confronted them in John 5 and says, yeah, you, you know the scriptures, but you don't know me. The scriptures, that's what's testifying about me, and you've completely missed it. The whole point of the revelation of the scriptures is to know Jesus. So don't read every chapter and verse this year and miss Jesus in the process. It would be better for you to, to read less and get Jesus in what you do read than complete the whole plan and miss Jesus. So we need community to help us do this well, to remind us of these things. How beautiful it would be this year to be the people of Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. In all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. That we would be so in the word and the word would be so in us 
that we are living out this reality this year. That would be a people that would love and enjoy Jesus in ways we haven't before and impact our city in ways we haven't before. Father, we thank you so much that you have chosen to make yourself known to us that we could be your people. And we hunger and desire to continue in that, to go deeper in that, to not settle for mediocrity or settle for just enough, but to hunger and thirst for more of you through your word. And so help us. We know it's only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that no one here would try to just do more and try harder. But we'd all see our brokenness and we'd run to Jesus first and ask for help. Help us to encourage each other in these things. Help us to edify the body in these things. Help us to experience these things. By your grace and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.